Let's together bow our heads for prayer. Lord, I thank you for your prophet Jonah and all that there is for us in this little book. I thank you for your deep love and your persistent pursuit of us. Lord, I pray for your help now, that you would help me as I preach, that your Holy Spirit would come and open all of our hearts to receive your goodness and your truth. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm excited to be starting into Jonah. It's been fun this week, even as I've been reading and preparing, and um, it's a very small work. It's only four chapters long. It's almost hard to find in the midst of the minor prophets, um, but it is so rich. And if you know your Bible a little bit, you know the basic story. The story is the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, who's an Israelite prophet, and, it, and the word tells him to go to Nineveh, which is the, the capital of Assyria, basic northern Iraq. And he doesn't want to do it, so he flees, and he goes across the Mediterranean Sea, and then God sends a storm and then a fish to scoop him up and take him back to land. And then again, he says, now I want you to go to Nineveh. And the second time he goes and he preaches, in my opinion, a very mediocre message and the whole city repents, a hundred thousand people, and they all repent and return to the Lord. Now, if that's as much of, of the story as you remember, you run the risk of a moralistic interpretation. And by moralistic interpretation, I mean this. If I disobey God, he comes and punishes me. If I obey him, he blesses and gives me a reward. It's kind of like a mathematical, almost an economical exchange, right? And the problem with that, there's a couple, number of problems with that. One is that's not what you see in the scriptures. Sometimes you go through a hard time and you're, you're writing God's will. Other times you go through a hard time because you are being disobedient. It, but it's not a one-to-one exchange. Another reason that that's tough is if it is a moralistic interpretation and then Jonah obeyed and so he was given success in Nineveh, then why is he so mad? When you get to chapter four, he is as mad as a hornet and he said, I'm angry enough to die. Well, that doesn't sound like blessing. That sounds like something is off here. And as you start reading into the story, you find that there's a lot of irony in it. You know, when the, the, the sailors on the boat ask him who he is, he says, I fear, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the God that made the sea. Although he's asleep in the storm and doesn't seem to care about the storm at all. And they, ironically, are very afraid of this God and they're, they're offering sacrifices to God and praying to the God that made the sea. They're, they're doing what he says he's about, but he's not doing it. And so you start reading this and you realize, man, this is teaching us something else. It's not saying be good so God will bless you. Don't be bad so he won't punish you. It is saying something entirely different. And one of the scholars I came across summarized it this way, and I really like this. He said, Jonah conveys to us, quote, the disturbing possibility that having pledged our life to God, we could end up spending much of that life avoiding the God we set out to serve. And what we're going to find in here is God seeking people. There's only four players in this story. There's God, there's Jonah, there's the sailors on the boat, and there's the people of Nineveh. And we're going to find that God is pursuing all three of the others. In fact, you could summarize the whole of this work with the idea that God has compassion for lost people, for sinners. But as we head into it, it it opens up for us a question I think is worth wrestling with. It asks the question about our own relationship with God, in particular with his word. So, If you know God's word, are you living it? Is it reflected in the way that you are living? If you don't know God's word, you actually don't know what is in this book, are you open to it? Maybe checking some of your preconceived ideas about God and saying, well, wait, what does his word actually teach? Are you open to it? 
regardless of where you are in that continuum, one of the things we're going to see here is how God strides, how he goes to great lengths to win our hearts out of love for us, what he's willing to do. We're going to see that throughout. And in the text in, per, in particular that I'm looking at today, chapter 1 of Jonah, and in fact, the first half of chapter 1, just verses 1 through 6, my main idea is that God pursues those who were lost, even his own people. So he's pursuing Jonah and Nineveh and the sailors on the boat. So the outline here is I'm going to introduce Jonah to you. Then I'm going to look at his response to God's first commissioning of him. And then I'm going to look at God's response to Jonah's rebellion. So let's start, start with Jonah. Who is Jonah? All right, if you're somebody who's about my age and you have kids that are teenagers now, they grew up with a cartoon series called The Veggie Tales. Awesome, creative, brilliant, big idea productions. I'm, I'm sad they went out of business. They were so good. And they made these, these cartoons out of, their characters were vegetables, literally, and they would tell the stories of the Bible. Now, there's two problems with The Veggie Tales. Um, one is that because it's a cartoon, you might think that Jonah is a cartoon as well, that he's not a real historical figure. The other problem is they are so memorable. You can't get the veggie tales out of your head. So the trailer, and they kept showing this too on the trailer and then in the movie, is one of the sailors on the boat when the storm is happening, he goes, somebody up there must be really upset with somebody down here. <laughs> and it's not in the Bible, at least not exactly like that. It, it, it's true. I mean, it's true. God was upset and, and Jonah did cause it. But, you know, it, so, but the temptation is to read Jonah and treat him like a, like a cartoon, like a comic strip or, a, or just, you know, fiction. But I'm going to give you several reasons why he's not fiction and why you should understand him to be a historical person. And the first is from 2 Kings. When you go to the Old Testament, if you went to 2 Kings in chapter 14, there is a real king of, North, of the northern kingdom of Israel who's named Jeroboam. He's the second, Jeroboam II. And it says this, and this is 2 Kings 14, uh, 25. It says that Jeroboam restored the border of Israel, and this was according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So we know Jonah was a prophet. We know his dad's name was Amittai, and he's from Gath Hefer. We know his hometown. That's not a comic strip. That's a real person in real history. Now, Jesus also spoke about Jonah. And in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, he's asked to do a sign by the religious leaders. And he says, no, this evil and adulterous generation, no, I won't do a sign except for the sign of Jonah. That's what you get, the sign of Jonah. And as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth, meaning in the tomb for three days. And also, it says that at the judgment day, the men of Nineveh will rise up against this current generation and judge it because they repented when Jonah preached. Jesus is not speaking about a parable here. He's saying the men of Nineveh, they're real historic figures and they're future figures. You're going to see them. We will probably meet them. I don't know how that's going to play out, but they're real people who repented at the preaching. And Jesus is saying they're going to come at the judgment and they're going to judge you guys that didn't repent. And something greater than Jonah is here. Speaking of himself, Jesus. So he's, he's speaking of Jonah and the Ninevites as real people. Jesus doesn't think they're a veggie tale or a comic. He thinks they're real people. Furthermore, if I was to write a fiction story, I might start it out something like this. Once upon a time, or in a galaxy far, far away, or something like that, right? That would cue you off that this is a make-believe story. This story starts with this. And the word of the Lord 
came to the prophet Jonah. And that little, that little phrase, the word of the Lord came to such and such, that's in the prophetic writings like over 80 times. And in every single instance, it is a real person and a real word from God to them. It never once starts off a, a, a fiction story or a parable or an allegory. It's God speaking to a real person. And it's no different here. And then finally, I'll give you a fourth, a fourth um, thing. It is far easier for the God of the universe to have a fish sustain in his innards a human man for three days than it is for him to raise an actual dead person into a resurrected body. I mean, think about all the ways that this God of creation has sustained the laws of physics and other things to do what he wants. He had Peter walk on water. Jesus turned water into wine. He, at one point, I love this, when they're complaining against Jesus and his followers about the temple tax, Jesus says, all right, listen, Peter, go down to the river, cast your hook in, the first fish you catch, pull it up, open its mouth, and in its mouth will be the coin that we need to pay the temple tax and go give it to, give it to them for us so they stop bothering us. And that's literally what happened. That's weird, I'll admit, but that's not too far for God. And there's this problem out there, I think, in, especially in an educated, enlightenment Western world, where we want to take all of the miracles out of the Bible. We just want to take them all out. You know, there's, there's actually a Thomas Jefferson Bible where he did that. He actually got scissors and he like, he went, oh no, walking on water. And he cut that out and he put together a Bible of just the moralistic teaching of Jesus. He cut out the resurrection. He cut out all the miracles, just took it all out because he, he didn't want to have faith for that. He couldn't believe that God would intervene like that in human history or that he was able to intervene like that. I hope that you will recognize that as weird as it is, and I, I get it. I mean, this is, it's weird. Jonah's thrown into the sea and then a fish swallows him. But, you know, God sustained, sustained um, Moses and Elijah for over 40 days without food or water. And then later he fed Elijah by a raven bringing some meat to him. Like God can do this. So we come to the scriptures with that faith assumption that God is able to do the impossible. What's impossible to us is possible to God. So that's, that's Jonah, all right? So we're going to take him as a historical person because he was one. Now, the real Jonah had an actual call as a prophet, which might have puffed him up a little bit. You know, the prophetic word is kind of a rare thing. God chose Jonah, and he probably had a sense of destiny and importance, and he had the problem of prior success. You see, that passage from 2 Kings 14 talks about his word being fulfilled. So it said about Jeroboam II that he restored the border of Israel. And on a map, the description is basically he restored it from the Dead Sea all the way up into, I guess, like northern Palestine and even into Syria. He established what had been lost from the kingdom of Solomon. Military conquest had pushed the kingdom back and had shrunk it down. And under Jeroboam, it got expanded. But it says that was according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah. So Jonah was called as a prophet. He had a special commissioning. And he had gone to the king and said, you are going to expand our nation. God is going to do this through you. And it happened. And so here he is successful, right? And success is dangerous. It's dangerous. Because you can, you can find success in your life or your ministry, That's not for your sake or even because of your obedience. It's because God wants to do something through you and he'll use you despite you. So it's a a check for me as a leader. I got an email this week that told me that our first quarter reports are in and through March, our giving and our attendance is at a record high. In the 12 years our church has existed, money and numbers are higher than they've ever been. Now I praise God for that, but that alone does not mean we please the heart of God. And I have to ask the question, are we pleasing you, Lord? 
Or are you doing that for the sake of our people and not the leaders? Maybe you're doing it despite me. I don't want that to be the case. I want to make sure that I am doing what you want the way you want it done. And I think Jonah was not doing what God wanted done. And he blessed the ministry anyway. You know, he's fleeing because he doesn't want to preach to heathens. And so what does God do? Ironically, he causes a whole ship of heathens to start worshiping God. And then he does the same thing in Nineveh. And the entire city repents, right? That's despite Jonah. So lest we think that our success means God is pleased with us, we have to slow down here and go, wait a minute, success could be danger. And the other thing that was happening here is the king, Jeroboam, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It says it right in the text. And yet, for 40 years, there was peace and expansion. And God was doing something else. If you read a little further, it says, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. In other words, God wasn't ready to judge fully the Israelites. So he allowed them to expand. And Jonah was correct in this regard. If the Ninevites had been wiped out by God and judged totally and taken from the earth, then they wouldn't have been the ones that came in and exiled them. Because that's exactly what happened. Israel did sin, and finally God judged them, and the Assyrians were the ones that came in in 722 BC and conquered the northern kingdom and exiled it over to Assyria. He was right, and that's, that was a very real risk. And you have to understand, like, the tensions between these warring nations was really thick, and they were constantly pushing back and forth. You know, in the country that we're in, we, we kind of have fixed boundaries because we have oceans. But if you're in, like, Middle East or Asia, those, those boundaries are hard to def- defend, right? I mean, it's just an open area. And so they're pushing back and forth, and people, you know, Assyria slowed down because some of the other nations were fighting against it, so it didn't have time to fight against Israel for 40 years. But then they got strong again. So all this was going on in there. And Jonah thought he was superior. He thought he was superior and he thought he was on God's side. Even so, resisting God's word. Now in verse 2, look at this. It, I don't know what page it is in the Pew Bible. Mine's a different number. But it says, I mean, check this for the clarity check. Let's make sure we're not, God wasn't vague or hard to understand. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. That's pretty straightforward. I think he knew what he was supposed to do. And the thing about obeying God's word is we don't disobey God's word because we don't understand it. We disobey God's word because we do. He wants us to do something we don't want to do. It's a battle of wills. And rather than surrender to his lordship, we go, no thanks, God. I'm going to go this way instead. And Jonah was doing that exact thing. Now, put that map up here, Stuart, for me. I, I want to kind of give us a geographic layout of where we're talking about. So down there, the red dot that says Joppa, that's, the, that's over in, in Israel, and that's the port city that he went to to catch the ship. Now, Nineveh is in northern Iraq, Mosul, that city. In fact, I learned from um, one of our members this morning who's from that area that they actually, the city, is, uh, Nineveh is still there. The walls are still there. It's just across the Tigris River. And once a year, they actually have Jonah Day, still to this day. And they remember that Jonah came and did good things for them. I mean, I thought that was amazing. So it's in northern Iraq, and it's about 550 miles from where he was. So God said, I want you to go over to that city and preach to them. Well, what does he do? He goes down to Joppa, pays his money, gets on a boat, and he tries to go 2,500 miles over to Spain. We think Tarshish was in Spain. Not Tarsus, where Paul was from, which could arguably have been on the way. Tarshish, 
in Spain. He goes 2,500 miles, or he thinks he's going to go 2,500 miles in the wrong direction. That was his plan. He was, in verse 3, two times it says this, he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He was trying to get away from God. And you and I know the problem with that. The runway is not long enough. You can't outreach him. David, King David said this. He said it so well in Psalm 139. He said, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. For night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. The problem is, you can't escape God because he's everywhere. You can pretend, you know, like the kid playing hide and seek, right? If you're trying to hide me and I do this number, like thinking you can't see me because I can't see you, like you can't escape God. You can't hide from him. You can ignore him. You can rebel against him. You can say no to him. But what we find in here is something about God that he's constantly pursuing He's going after us because he loves us. And we go astray, and like the good shepherd that he is, he goes. And so you think you're getting away from him, and then he he pops up in your life in different ways. You see him in in things. You think you're doing something different, he's right there. And you're like, ah. And then he goes, ah, there he is. It's like, I'm I'm reading this book um, called Endurance about Ernest Shackleton. In 1914, Ernest got on a ship, and he tried to go all the way to Antarctica. And he was going to take a, he had like, dogs and sleds, and he was going to go all the way across to the, to the, he wanted to get to the South Pole. And he got 200 miles from the shore in his monster boat. I don't know if you can see it, but there's a huge tall ship that he had with thick wooden sides, and he got pinned in the ice. And they spent 10 months living on floating ice that was drifting north, not where he wanted to go. And they watched slowly as the ice crushed the hull and then sank the ship. And then they were, they made a camp, and they're living on a floating iceberg. And they had some skis, and they had like a couple of guns, but not much ammo. And so they would go hunting for seals, like without a gun. And in one of the instances, one of the guys who's on some skis, so he doesn't fall through the, the, the soft uh, top of the ice, suddenly sees a head pop up, an angry head with a, like a knobby head, breaks up through the ice, jumps on the ice, and just starts galloping after him. It was a sea leopard, which is an 1,100-pound predatory variety of seal. And, and he's like screaming to the guys at the camp to get the gun and he's skiing across and this thing's galloping after him and it almost has him and then it wheels right and dives back into the water and he thinks he's going to make it onto the big iceberg and it and then it pops up in front of him it had followed his shadow underneath and then came up this way and they finally got the gun and he he survived barely but you know it's like you can't outrun something like that you can't and and god's not trying to eat you he loves you he, he's trying to get you to get what you're, what's best for you. And you run away, only to find him there, waiting for you. You know, you think, oh, I don't really want to go to church today. And you show up, and he's like here. And I, sometimes he's like, hey, I've been waiting here all morning for you. It's good to see you. He's got goodness for us, and he loves us. So we see what he does in this story. We see that he is willing to bring a storm upon a ship out of love for Jonah, for those sailors, and for Nineveh. He's willing to bring a fish and sustain his life in the weirdest of ways. You have to understand, Jonah thought he was going to be a martyr for Israel. I'm going to not go to Nineveh. I'm willing to die in my rebellion. Throw me into the sea. He was hoping to drown. Then he could be seen as a true nationalistic man. And yet God said, no, I've got a different plan for you. And he 
next week we'll get into what happens, but in the belly of the fish, he finds a place of temporary repentance, but it's only like foxhole kind of faith. And so God goes to that length for him. But see, that's not the only length God is willing to go to. If you think bigger picture, out of love for the lost, even, even us, he's willing to leave heaven, the son of God leaves heaven and comes and lives among us and then dies on a cross. You know, that's the sign of Jonah, that the son of man would be in the belly of the earth three days. He actually died and went into that tomb out of love for us. That's the extent of how far God will go to win your heart. And he keeps pursuing They call him the hound of heaven. Scholars of past years have called him the hound of heaven. He's constantly pursuing us, and we are constantly turning away, turning away, turning away. And he's saying, come back to me, come back to me. And he's driven by love, not your obedience. Your obedience is the best thing for you, but he is driven not to just get you to obey and conform. He wants you to have the best life, and whatever God brings your way is for your best. So surrender. I mean, Sometimes you read these, these stories and it's like, be like the person in the story. Don't be like Jonah. That's the, that's the application. Don't be like this. When you hear God's word, do what it says. Obey it. Obey his word. It's pretty straightforward. And then what you'll find is God will bless you. Because his word is always good. Read Psalm 119. It's long and it's all about how good God's word is. Not because of some moralistic interpretation. You know, if you do good, you get X. It's like, it's not some, celestial economics game. That's, that's moralistic preaching. That's not what the Bible is about. He's saying, come do it my way because that's what you were made for. And I love you. That's the best thing for you. So let's do that. Let's return to him and stop running. Would you pray with me? Lord, you know, our hearts, you know, our thoughts, even before we think them, you know, how easy we can justify things. I pray that you'd have mercy on us. I thank you for your deep love and compassion that we see in your word. Out of your love for us, would you show us how it is that we can return to you? Lord, help us to repent and come back. Thank you for being so patient. Thank you for not being angry. Thank you for that love. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.